So let me first begin by thanking Lindsay Speckman and Jessica Shipp and Evan Haig for leading us in our call to worship this morning, and it gives me an opportunity to give a special welcome home to all of our college students and others who have come back to be here for the holiday. We're so glad to see you again. So the gospel reading for today is uh, a traditional reading from the Gospel of Matthew. You know, that gospel starts out with a long genealogy, a list of names, most of which I can't pronounce, and I don't think I want to bore you with it anyway, so we'll, not that they're unimportant, but we'll go to the narrative part of the story of Matthew, uh, beginning in the 18th verse. Let us listen now for the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. And just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her, until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you are walking in a winter wonderland, or dreaming of a certain color of Christmas, I think you're just in the right frame of mind for the story of Jesus' birth. Because the entire narrative moves on the skids of dream-like encounters and nocturnal visions. It's Joseph who keeps having these dreams. And it might suggest, from dream research, we know that the peak age of having dreams is young adulthood. So perhaps he wasn't an old man, as some have, have guessed, but rather a young adult matched up with a young teenager, Mary. Well, Joseph encounters a message from God in a dream. It's not just any dream. And he has these dreams repeatedly. It makes you wonder what his waking thoughts were like. Because often don't we dream about things that have happened to us or are happening in our lives during the daytime? We know that there are neurochemical changes that happen in our brain when we're in deep sleep, and that these changes not only generate, but also uh, allow us to trust extraordinary visions. 
the dopamine, the neurotransmitter associated with pleasure and reward in our brain surges. Activity spikes in the emotion center of our brain. And at the same time, in the prefrontal cortex, the main area involved in rational thinking and decision-making, that powers down while we dream. Levels of serotonin and norepinephrine, which are associated with self-control, these go down. The result is kind of a perfect chemical canvas for dreams, for dramatic, even intense visions. Once there was a college student who had just graduated and was trying to decide what to do in her career path, and she dreamed that she was on a plane flying over a large map of the United States. And in her dream, the pilot announced that the engine was failing and they would have to make an emergency landing and they had to look for a safe place to land. And the student in the dream suggested they land in Massachusetts, but the pilot ended up landing in California. When she woke up, she interpreted that dream as guidance for her career. And, you know, I guess if we're lucky, dreams can give us insight into personal problems and ideas for creative projects. Dreams can help us process things that have happened in the past or rehearse things that are coming toward us from the future. When we dream, often we see solutions in surreal metaphors rather than bluntly reasoning them out. And so we can see things in a new light. We withhold judgment. We consider ideas we might otherwise dismiss and confront emotional truths that we would rather resist. And so the Bible is full of dreamers. People like Samuel, who dreamt in the night that he was called, and Daniel, who could interpret the dreams of kings, and Joseph, who interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, and almost every prophet contains some sort of dream or vision involved in their message. Pilate's wife even had a dream about Jesus that greatly disturbed her. And Paul had a dream when he was in Corinth and was facing intense opposition and was wondering whether to turn back. And the dream told him to keep going. So, although the beautiful carol tells us that beneath thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. I don't think it was a dreamless sleep. In fact, the story tells us that in that dark night, Joseph dreamed. Joseph dreamed, an angel spoke, and I don't know if it was Joseph's dream or God's, but when he woke up the next morning, he, did, he had decided on a radical change of plans. He would not divorce Mary, after all, as he had planned to do. He would instead remain married to her. Now, they were already legally married, even though they weren't living together. And so he decides to change plans because of a dream. One wonders 
if that nighttime vision could have resolved all of his misgivings about this young woman who had suddenly become pregnant, could have dissolved all the tension between them, or just what was his state of mind? By the way, if we were reading from Luke's version of the story, we might well be asking these same questions of Mary. What's going on with her as she ponders all of these strange things in her heart? But Matthew's gospel focuses on Joseph's experience. And because of a dream initiated by God, he agrees to become the legal father of this baby and to give this marriage a shot. He's guided not only to stay married to Mary, but also to move the family in in subsequent dreams. He's told to move before they even finish unwrapping the shower gifts. Get out of here. And they head to Egypt, making the Holy Family every bit the refugees that we see on our borders today from Guatemala or Honduras or other places, traveling with everything they own in a couple of bags. The good news in all of this dreaming is, of course, that these are not random events, that there is some higher power, some deeper meaning, some purpose at work behind or underneath or in these amazing stories. There is a sovereign purpose in the heart of God to redeem, to bring home, to reconcile, to heal all people, all creation, or as Matthew says, to save people from their sins. It's this mysterious, somewhat scandal-ridden story about a baby's birth that foreshadows the adult career of Jesus, who was ever the outsider, misunderstood, unrecognized, except by people like shepherds and lepers and prostitutes and demoniacs and the despairing. And yet this is a joyous and outstanding intention of God, we are told. It is conveyed first in dreams. Do you think God dreams about you? I do. I think God has dreams for us. In the Psalms it says that before we were born, we were in the mind of God. Isn't that a kind of dream for us? In the book of Romans, Paul says that all creation groans as if it is in labor. Creation, the first incarnation of God, dreaming as if a pregnant woman who dreams about the child within her. A dream for wholeness. God reveals a dream about us to John. In the book of Revelation, it is written, the home of God will be among human beings and God will live with them and they will live with God. 
and they will be together. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, and mourning and pain will be no more, and all the nations will gather together in God's light. Jesus expressed the dream of God this way. He said, Father, I pray that I will be in them and they in me and we in you, that we will all be one and that my joy will be in them. In Jesus' dream for us, the poor will be favored, the meek and the hungry will be blessed the pure in heart and the merciful, those who put their energy into peace and reconciliation, they will be blessed. In Jesus' dream here, there won't be two Jacksonvilles, but just one reconciled homeland. Do you think any of these dreams could come true? Or do you think they're just fantasies? Pretty words. I think in some ways they already are true and real. You know, I think when I go to Haiti and see what is going on there with people rebuilding their lives, when I visit the sanctuary on 8th Street and see how adults and kids are working together. I mean, those are like glimpses of God's dream. And I bet you've had glimpses like that yourself. A number of years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I, since we're talking about Bethlehem, I'll tell you a story about Bethlehem. I went to Bethlehem right after the Second Intifada. That was a time of intense hostility between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And uh, it, was, it was sparked when Ariel Sharon went and visited the Temple Mount, which is also the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third most holy site in Islam, which enraged uh, the Palestinians. And so there was a lot of hostility and, and tragedy And this time had just passed when I was over there with the group visiting. And as a part of our visit, we went to Bethlehem. To get to Bethlehem, though, from Jerusalem, you have to pass through their security wall. It's a wall that is about at least as high as the walls in here that go up to, say, midway through the uh, stained glass windows. Very high mostly concrete, sometimes steel wall, sometimes barbed wire at the top with uh, guard towers stationed throughout and cameras and often armed people. And to get to Bethlehem, one needs to go through a security checkpoint so that your vehicle is stopped and uh, guards, armed guards come and kind of check you out and look around. It's kind of disconcerting. Uh, But then we went into Bethlehem, now a rather large city, uh, and 
saw some amazing sights, including the, the Church of the Nativity. But what sticks in my mind was a school I went to up in the suburbs on a hillside. And uh, it was called the Dar Kalima School. And it was a school that was founded by the Lutheran Church. Lutheran Church has a church there and a conference center and a school and now a university. And what is important to me about this school is children who are Jewish, uh, Christian, and Islamic are all going to kindergarten together. They're all going to third grade together. They're learning how to read and do arts and crafts together. They're learning the ways of peace. If that isn't God's dream, I don't know what is. And so we have an opportunity to get in on the dream life of God for us. I know that Mariah Carey says, all I want for Christmas is you. And Bing Crosby said, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And Aerosmith just screamed, dream on. But I bet every one of us has a Christmas wish or two. For some of us, it's just the wish to get it over with and to make it through. But the work of faith on this fourth Sunday of Advent is to acknowledge that there is the possibility of a lucid dream. Those dreams in which we feel semi-awake, in which we have some control over what is happening, some say in how things end. This is God's dream in which we are invited to be participants. Like tomorrow night, if you're here at 5 o'clock, all of the kids, they're not going to just hear a story, they're going to be up here in the story. And so, we too, like children, are invited to be in the story and to dream God's lucid dream for ourselves and for the world. What do you think if you were to imagine God's dream for you right now, right where you are, just think, in this season of incarnation, we're invited to listen to the voice of God. Amen.